Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. <coughs> oh, geez. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I have a little cold. Uh, I'm hoping that you won't uh, really pick that up on, on the mic when we get going. No, no, no. It was very subtle. Just might need to wipe a few things off. But I'm ready when you are. And here we are on another episode of Saul Searching, the podcast where Chris and I talk about the latest installment of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul. This time we're talking about the second episode of the fourth season of Better Call Saul, and that is an episode called Breathe, a title that might have a special resonance for you right now, Chris, with your congestion. <clears throat> I'm sorry? Nothing. Never mind. This episode was written by longtime Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul writer Thomas Schnauz, and it was directed by Michelle McLaren, who has directed also great episodes of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and Game of Thrones and other things. So it's kind of like a, a hot shot episode in a lot of ways as far as the, the team behind it. That's what we'll be talking about. As we get to the midpoint of the episode, we will switch gears to continue a project that Chris and I have embarked on that's actually one day going to be the most impactful thing yeah. that we've ever done. Yeah. And that is to say, well, all right, Better Call Saul, widely regarded as a great spinoff. How does it really stack up against the great spinoffs of all time? Good question. For now, we're going to get to breathe. I wish I could get to breathe. What did you think of Breathe overall as as an episode of television? And I guess as a chapter of this this long, long story that we're involved in. Uh, I liked it. I thought it had some some good uh, developments. Anytime somebody dies on a show, that's exciting. On a show like this, where it's like, oh, that guy who we have seen a bunch of times and you didn't know the details of how that might happen or that it was going to happen, then, you know, it's it's a development. And there was some stuff with, uh, uh, with Jimmy and his attitude about the world that gave me a big wow moment and uh some stuff to think about with uh kim and 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 what she's thinking about everything that's going on let's kind of get to things in our usual method of of starting with maybe the least explosive or least dramatic storyline first and i would say this week that has to be mike who basically just gets a moment a scene a little section in the story where we see where he's at and i'm reminded of what you said last time about certain steps in the story that we just know have to happen because of the way this show sort of slows down and shows you everything certain episodes will be chess piece moving episodes um versus episodes where things finally happen right they have to put things in place mike did the thing that he did last week with the clipboard and the badge, and now uh, Lydia, on behalf of Madrigal, and perhaps on behalf of what she thinks are Gus's best interests, but maybe not actually uh, knowing what Gus would wish, she is basically telling Mike to cut it out. Uh, this the stunt you pulled will make us all look bad, and it's uh, increasing our risk. Right, but then Mike kind of uh, wins the contest. He still has the respect of, of Gus, and she's going to have to give him a badge, and so... That's just putting the pieces in place of saying, well, here's how Mike went from a uh, paid guy who's supposed to sit at home to uh, almost sort of at least seeming to have a real job. Even if he is sort of accepting a cog-like role in this situation, he might say he is, but he's not really satisfied with being a cog. Right. And so he's kind of got this this shit-stirring tendency as well as the, the job. He's always about the job, but he's also got a little bit of a... Uh, hey, buddy, screw you, uh, attached to a lot of the things he does. I'm going to do it my way. Right, and I'm going to do things. I'm not a useless person. I'm not going to sit on my ass. Right. Lydia wants to complain to Gus about what's going on, and Gus basically says, I, you know, I think you're avoiding the simplest solution to this, which is just let him do what he's going to do. He seems fine with the notion that Mike's going to be doing whatever he's doing until until needed. Yeah, apparently he doesn't care. Well, that's all we got of Mike. 
but it's certainly not all we got of Gus. In fact, the whole episode started out under the shadow of Gus's obsession with Hector. In the cold opening, we see that he has sent Victor and his doctor, Barry Goodman, who we've seen a couple times before um, on Breaking Bad and on this show, um, who just appears to be Gus's doctor. Yep. And he confirms for Gus that Hector is no longer in a coma, but he's unresponsive. And he posits that this is a, a fitting fate for Hector, that he's kind of trapped in his own body. And and Gus says that's not good enough. He says, I decide what he deserves and no one else. But Dr. Goodman in that scene also says to Gus that the only way he could imagine Hector having better care would be if he was at a place like Johns Hopkins. So that sets up something for later. But what we know for now is definitely that Gus is is watching the situation like a hawk and he's not very satisfied with it. And he's definitely mulling some things over. We don't really see into what what his plans are, but we do see that later when Tyrus brings him this mystery manila envelope and Gus looks at the contents, it seems to A, have something to do with Hector, and it seems to B, set Gus on a course in his mind. Right. I wasn't quite sure how I was supposed to read that, but it did seem like the information in the folder had to do with Hector's health. To me, it in the moment looked like... Is uh, like this is just supposed to be like oh he got a copy of his medical file or or something like that like oh okay I'm looking at the at the recent write ups on his condition that uh, we pilfered from the hospital you know that's what I assumed in the moment it was supposed to be maybe it is that we're supposed to put together oh he looked at the envelope he saw how bad Hector is doing that makes him mad at Nacho and he plans all along to execute this attack on the other guy. Yeah, Arturo. But we're not quite there yet. We still have to kind of build up to it on Nacho's side. So let's leave Gus for a minute and just talk a little bit about what Nacho's journey is this episode. He visits with his father, and it's an ambiguous visit where it seems that Nacho is there on behalf of the Salamancas to pick up his father's sort of protection payment. And obviously Nacho is also there to see his father and the father is a bit disgusted with the son, but he's also worried about him. But I did end that scene thinking, okay, Nacho's dad still cares about him and Nacho can still stop and have a conversation with his dad to say, I'm trying, dad, I'm trying to get out of this. I, but it was an odd moment in there when he, Nacho says, keep the money, you can you can keep it. And then Nacho picks up the money and leaves with it. <laughs> I, I, I did have a, a strange little disconnect right there. It felt to me like, oh, a parent giving a kid some money, sometimes there's some feigned, uh, I don't need it. No, mom, you don't have to. But then eventually your mom slides a 20 into your pocket and you sort of go, okay, I'm going to stop fighting this in a way. I mean, I don't think that that was on the surface, but I wonder if somewhere in there there's this like parental thing about, no, you're going to take the money that I'm leaving for you. And Nacho's just like, fine, I'll take it. If you're acting proud about it, dad, because I could use it, you know, because my neck's on the line. Yeah, but it's weird to leave out you could have just clarified that with another line or something you would think no i agree and i think the other odd thing about that scene is the way that nacho is lurking in the shadows when his dad shows up uh like he's <laughs> right. like he's batman or something like that it's yeah just why kinda... did he lock himself in there and if he's here to have a nice peaceful interaction he's like i'm gonna sit in here in the dark until my beloved dad shows up and then be like hey here i am <laughs> i think in a dramatic way you can say he knew that if he didn't surprise his father 
his father would do everything he could not to face him or not to communicate with him. That if he shows up and says, I want to talk to you, his dad can say, leave. But if his dad shows up and, and Nacho catches him unawares, maybe he feels he has to talk to me. Because there was that kind of feel of, no, dad, just wait. I need to talk to you. You know, like, don't, don't, don't ignore me. But I also think because it looks cool to have a guy standing in the shadows when someone pulls up the door. Okay. Which I think this show is guilty of sometimes, doing those shots where it's like, this looks yeah, really neat. right. Now, Nacho's next big moment is in the scene where he and Arturo go to the hospital to visit with Hector. But before they arrive, there's actually a little bit that transpires in Hector's room that seems uh, noteworthy. Namely, that a new doctor, Dr. Maureen Bruckner, is brought in. Yes. The real tell as to what might be going on here is the fact that Dr. Bruckner comes from Johns Hopkins, which seems like an obvious callback to the scene at the beginning of the episode where uh, Barry Goodman made it clear to Gus that he thought that maybe Hector could get better care at a facility like Johns Hopkins. So I don't think it's reading into it too much to suggest that Dr. Bruckner has been sent in, brought in by Gus indirectly to ensure that Hector, his health improves and he's lucid enough to fully suffer Gus's revenge. No, no, I think that was clearly telegraphed for us, the viewer, to because also uh, a big grand came in and she we got to have, have her come down. You know, uh, so the big grant is got to be that Gus donated a bunch of money and said, hey, why don't you guys uh, bring in a doctor from Johns Hopkins to help you out for two weeks or something. That's just so, so very Gus. That he would, um, you know, go out of his way and spend money and do something that appears very charitable, uh, all to deepen the uh, the punishment for Hector. That's exactly the Gus way. So Nacho and Arturo arrive as Dr. Bruckner is talking to the cousins or the nephews, depending on how you look at it, yeah. uh, who are sort of standing in for the worried family members at the bedside of, of Hector. Yeah. And and basically what she says to the assembled group is that Hector might recover quicker, or at least you might reach the person who's trapped within this mobile facade yeah. if you speak to him and say things that would have been comforting to him. Right. And it's kind of a double joke there. One is that she's talking to the cousins who who are, as characters on the show, good for a glower and not much else. Yeah. But also, I don't think the Salamanca family is a particularly verbal family in terms of bearing their feelings. Right. So, you know, when she says talk to him, you can kind of tell that no one in the room really knows what that means or what that looks like. I just thought that was funny and sad, and it was such a sad commentary on Hector's life in a way that even the people closest to him can't really think of anything warm to say that isn't just total pablum. Right, and it's mostly just a show for the nephews. Like, what can I say that the nephews will see me acting like I care. Especially in terms of Nacho, because we know when he says, you're going to be back stronger than ever to Hector, he's saying it through gritted teeth and with, with sweat coating his face. The, the last thing he wants is for Hector to be back at full power. Right. Nacho is very sad to hear himself say that. Right. But oddly enough, it's Arturo who takes the lead in that scene in terms of speaking to Hector. And I suppose he's always been the great Hector loyalist in a way. And it makes sense that he would be the person who would try the hardest. And at the time, I just thought, oh, nice, Arturo got more of a moment. But as the episode goes along, you realize, okay, the economy of characters on a long-running show should tell me that if a secondary character gets a little bit of a showcase, then that means either they're going to get a plot line or they're about to die. Yeah. And sure enough, uh, Arturo does die yeah. very, very soon. But first, there's a scene 
where um, he and Nacho face off with uh, Victor and Tyrus. And and while it's kind of neat in this world to see all of these henchmen characters that we know interacting away from their bosses, I just feel like we've seen this type of moment in other movies and shows before with drugs on the table yeah. and someone's going, where's the rest of it? And the other guy goes, you'll take what we give you and you'll like it. And everybody reaches for their gun. Yeah. It felt kind of boilerplate. Well, and it does have the added uh, layer of watching Nacho wield this gun and threaten some guy's lives when you have been thinking so clearly so recently about how he just wishes he was completely out of this game. You know, he would rather be sewing seat covers or something. And now here he is uh, just to save his own skin, having to pull a gun on some guys who have guns. Right. Well, they leave with all the drugs and Arturo is feeling cocksure. And then bag on head, uh, Gus is evil. Yep. We knew he was a bad guy. And this really reminded us which I guess what it does is it sets the stakes for Nacho. Yeah. Or Nacho's father. Yeah. That, that, that's the character we kind of care about in this scenario. Well, and it can also just be about how Gus uh, gets control of more uh, power. We predicted this somewhat when we said the next scene between Nacho and Gus has to be Gus laying down the law for Nacho on some level. And it happened much more brutally than I expected it to, but it was the scene that we predicted, which is Nacho hearing Gus say, I know what you did and I'm going to use it. You're going to, you're going to work for me because of this. Right. And then the episode ends, which is a great place to end the episode. If you want to leave people with their hearts in their mouths. However, we have to double back and pick up our lead characters that are mostly on the other side of the law, that being Jimmy and Kim and Howard, who at the end of last week had a big moment or felt like a big moment where, where Howard unburdened himself about what he believes to be the, the sort of chain of causation in Chuck's death and how he feels personally responsible and that he thinks Chuck killed himself intentionally. And Jimmy said, well, that's your cross to bear. When Howard expressed some sense of responsibility for, for Chuck's downturn, and that felt very cold, and it seemed that Kim was reacting to Jimmy in this quizzical way, and, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then this week picks up, and and we're not really seeing the aftermath of that event. We're seeing the next morning or so when it, that, that feeling, that mood is still hanging over things. Kim is obviously eyeing Jimmy suspiciously, but it seems to be more suspiciously based on how he's not giving himself a moment to breathe, less suspiciously uh, based on some kind of moral issues. And I honestly don't know if I was able to fully grasp where Kim's head was at in this episode. And even more so once she's had her big moment, her big scene, one of the most satisfying speeches perhaps in the history of the show where, where Kim goes to Howard uh, for a meeting about Chuck's estate. The plan is at least Howard's plan is to pay Jimmy a small amount uh, as a concession. So he won't contest the will that he is not a part of. And it's really unclear whether Howard thinks that's fair or thinks that he's giving Jimmy the middle finger, but obviously Kim ain't having it, and she goes off in, in, in glorious fashion. I didn't do it to hurt Jimmy. No, you did it to make yourself feel better. That, uh, that's to, not to what I was trying to do. make yourself feel better by unloading your guilt. Who cares what it does to Jimmy, right? As long as Howard Hamlin is okay. Kim, I, I don't think that's fair. Fair? Let's talk about fair. Hey, let's let Jimmy dig around the fire-damaged wreck where his brother died screaming. And then let's let him pick up a keepsake or two. That is so, so fair. And did I hear you right? You want him to serve on the board of a scholarship committee? A scholarship that Chuck never in a million years would have given to Jimmy. Never. It is just, I mean, oh, what's this too, huh, Howard? What's in this? One last screw you, little brother, from beyond the grave? 
Am I really supposed to do this to him? All right, Kim. What can I do to make it better? Nothing. There is nothing you can do. And I'm wondering, do you think she's compensating for doubts she has? Or do you think she really is still somewhat in the dark about what's going on with Jimmy? That's a good question. I found it very murky and messy when I try to add it up. I enjoyed the scene of her going off on Howard, and uh, they both put in great performances there. He's like a kid getting chewed out yes. by a teacher or, or an adult where, where you know you've been caught doing something bad and you're thinking about your actions while the person is, is being kind of in your face. But you're also realizing, oh, my gosh, no, you're right. One second ago, I thought I was in the right, and now I'm realizing I'm in the wrong. Right. Um, and, yeah, he wanted to—I I believe he was sincere when he was like, what can I do to make this right? Right, right. I, I thought so, too. And uh, so I just thought it was it was very well done the way she blew up on him for— for sort of just relieving his own guilt by dumping it on Jimmy at that time on that day. But what that creates is then you look back at the scene at the end of last episode and you say, okay, during that scene, was she very mad at Howard for telling Jimmy this right after the funeral and then very mad at Jimmy for or if not mad then perplexed she you know she has that look on her face at jimmy for throwing the guilt back all back on howard uh that's just such a a uh tangled knot like i think if if you know if i was a script doctor and somebody came to me and they said there's this scene and the woman in there is uh, really mad at this guy for this reason and really mad at this other guy for this other reason and uh, we can only tell she's mad at this one guy because look on his face, and then it's the following episode when we, she explains that she's mad at the other guy, but we didn't know she was mad at him also. And those two reasons are different and not really related to each other. I would say streamline that and uh, take some of that out or clarify it. It just is a... Don't you think that's sort of a mess? Writing-wise? No, but I'll tell you why. It's because Kim is as much of a character as Jimmy. We're accustomed to ending a Jimmy scene or an episode and thinking about Jimmy's motivations from a standpoint of, well, I really like what he did here, but I don't like what he did there, and, and I'm kind of proud of him for this, but I think he's headed in the wrong direction. And I think that Kim is is in that zone now where we can enjoy everything about a scene. I, I love what she said to Howard. I, I, so much of that felt so right and it rang so true, but you don't know exactly how correct she is and and if she isn't misdirecting some of her energies. So whereas you describe a kind of cluttered form of writing where she's got all these balls up in the air at, at one time that she's mad at Jimmy and she's mad at Howard and all of her actions are kind of a combination of that. I think that in the tradition of really good writing, she's kind of got one emotion that she's acting on at a time. And I think she went to see Howard on Jimmy's behalf, and she's definitely in Jimmy's corner to the point where she's she's angry at Howard for the way that he laid that stuff on Jimmy, but but she's also noticing what Jimmy's behavior is that, that could be a sign of trouble. I mean, if this were a movie, I would say, yes, yeah, streamline the heck out of that character. But this is a, a long-running television show instead, and she's one of the leads. So there's room for that level of nuance where you can say, you know, A, she's putting out one fire at a time, but also that she's going to evolve in her feelings towards Jimmy. And maybe this season we will see her 
back out of that uh, role of being his defender, but she's looking at Jimmy in a very positive light right now. And those warning signs that he's being a little frantic and going out looking for these jobs and being kind of secretive and not coming to this meeting and all this stuff, I think she's sort of seeing all that as he's holding up under the stress of this tragedy. Um, so she's not looking for all the warning signs just yet, I don't think. But I do think she noticed that moment last week as a, that's weird. Um, it just felt like a more monumental reaction when we saw it at the end of an episode than it turned out to be. Right. I think you're right that, that she's going through one thing and then another, but that is so uh, subtle. Uh, and you're right. Jimmy can be complicated. She can be complicated. But, yeah, it's when, when so many things are not said in words and you have to guess at them, it, it gets uh, almost too subtle for my taste where I have to think, yeah, I guess she is going through this process, but I can see that, that you know, I mean, it makes sense that she uh, likes Jimmy, so she can be surprised and put off when he goes wrong, but then pretty quickly go back to, he's my boyfriend who I love and I defend him no matter what. One thing that became very clear through all of that was that the letter from Chuck to Jimmy is definitely now a MacGuffin of sorts of what's in that letter. Is her hiding it from him going to backfire in some way? Is it going to be something that Jimmy throws in the fire without ever looking at it? Like what's going to be the destiny and the contents of that uh, envelope? I'm very curious about that. Is she going to steam the letter first to find out what it is and then decide whether or not to show it to him? Is she just going to, is he going to find out about it? Yeah, before or after she decides to show it to him. And what does it say? And do we believe that Howard actually doesn't know what it says? Right. I also have a question of when the note was written. Right. And where it was found. Because uh, you want to speculate, does it add anything to the conversation that they had, which was a few days before Chuck died? I feel like it wouldn't really add to that except to add more of the same. This is my guess, but it's, it's just total guessing. But it seems like it would be that he wrote this four years ago when he was setting up his will and everything. And he wrote a note that said, I'm sure you're wondering why you didn't get anything to speak of. And the reason is you ruined our family and uh, made life a living hell for our father and mother. And you never you're always been a terrible bum. You know, he just uh, dressed him down in letter form and that now that's there. Uh, that Jimmy can finally get a hold of that and have one more uh, nudge towards uh, the feeling, you know, that the world has never been good to me. I don't have to be good to the world. What you just described is kind of what I think would be the most satisfying thing, but I also think that that's subversive almost to say that Jimmy finally opens the letter and all the tension around what it says and maybe it says something that changes anything. It's just more of the same. Right. Um, It's like a Schrodinger's cat situation though where it's like until he opens the letter the letter could be good the letter could be bad i kind of feel like if it's good it can't come to fruition and if it's bad then jimmy definitely opens it and reads it at a pivotal moment it is weird that what you know that whatever it says good or bad it can't override what chuck said later if the note was written before chuck said that to jimmy right so the only way it could in any way even if it's a sweet letter it won't undo what chuck said later Right, but it might still make you feel a little better. As much as we enjoyed Michael McKean's very humanistic portrayal of Chuck, I think we are meant to feel in the end that he was an antagonistic character. Yeah. And that, you know, everything that made him sympathetic didn't take away the fact that he was an unpleasant man. Well, he was a real man, 
and uh, when you're a, an actual person, you have you have unpleasant things about you, and you have uh, great things about you. And he he had all that. Right. So the only thing left to really talk about is the the main thrust of the Jimmy plot. And I guess we can look at the Neff copiers scene as the big centerpiece for Jimmy in this episode. They generally try to give Bob Odenkirk a, a, a big scene, a big acting showcase every episode or so. But this was a particularly interesting one because Jimmy changes his tack in this situation. He kind of seems to be vulnerable and spinning out a little bit because he doesn't seem to really have much of a through line. I know he says he's going to look for work, and I believe that's what he thinks he's doing. But I think he's got all these competing impulses, similar to what you were saying about Kim. I think Jimmy kind of wants a job, but kind of doesn't want to work with a bunch of schmoes and kind of knows he can work people to get what he wants, but kind of doesn't respect people if he can work them. And then while he's there, he sees that Hummel figurine and later he remembers that to look that up. I mean, I feel like there's so many threads going there that I don't know that Jimmy has a plan. It's not like one of those episodes where he circled all those places with some shrewd master plan in mind. I think he really was looking for a job to distract himself from the Chuck situation and perhaps denying his, his feelings about what really happened. Um, and then he went into this situation and kind of had a nervous breakdown in the form of a three-part job interview. What did right. you think of that scene at Neff Copiers? I loved it. I thought it was so well done. Um, of course, uh, Bob Odenkirk is so great and that he could, you know, but he, he leaves and he's done. And then he gets the idea to go back and you don't know what's going on. But Jimmy just gives them this perfect pitch why you should hire me. And then they do. And then he has such disrespect for them as as suckers that it's like so he went in there thinking oh i'm gonna find out if they are really naive stupid people by trying this on them and doesn't take the job i don't know it really was super harsh the way that he uh uh balled about and and left <laughs> without taking a job uh i really it felt to me like it was just showing you how I don't know if this is really what it's about at all. I guess we'll find out. But it seemed like it was to show you that he can have such a disdain for for innocent people based on their naivete. Yes. In that way, you could justify uh, uh, victimizing uh, just anybody because you could say, hey, you, you fell for this trick. Uh, that means you deserve to be tricked. Right. Uh, and that makes him really terrible and you're really not if he yeah if he really didn't want the job why did he go back and 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 do all that to them just to find out if they were worth working with it could be a lot more linear than that in the sense that he could just be walking out feeling the way we all do when we are leaving a job interview yeah which is to say there's a lot of self-questioning going on and you kind of feel like you sold yourself out and you fake smiled and you're not sure it was worth it i could have done better so when he went back in i really think he was just trying to fix that feeling. So in that moment, he really was just thinking, I'm going to go in and sell these guys, not I'm going to go in and test these guys and find out whether they're suckers. Right. I mean, Jimmy may be up to something really twisted there, like you're suggesting, but I, I kind of feel like the thought that these guys are suckers came to him in the moment of, of them buying his pitch. Well, that's several times this episode that we have struggled with. Yeah, but what exactly was the person thinking? And I feel like we don't usually have that many of that type of question. And... It can be fine and fun to wonder over that and worry over that, but I, I like things to be a little more simple and clear usually, so I don't want this many in one episode usually where I'm going, 
I don't know what's in their mind. Well, I think at the end of the episode, we do know what's in his mind, though, because he's looked up the Hummels, and he, he sees how much they're worth, and he wants to go back in and steal this thing. If he's trying to get Mike involved at the end of the episode, which it seems like he is, I think he's thinking, oh, we'll just, we'll just split the 8,000, yeah. um, and it'll be easy money for both of us. I think what's interesting about the Hummel is when, when he flashes on the Hummel and he goes, oh, I used to know somebody that collected those or whatever it is he said. Um, it makes you think of the Jimmy that we like, you know, right. and then later when he's looking it up online, it makes you think of the Jimmy that we don't like. So the Hummel kind of bookends right. <laughs> Jimmy's right. moral slide there, which reminds me, speaking of the Hummel, um, I, I wanted to mention that the two actors who share the scene with Jimmy at Neff Copiers are both character actors who have had recurring parts on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I knew they were familiar. Mr. Neff is played by Andrew Friedman, who is also the actor that plays uh, Charlie's creepy Uncle Jack, oh. the incompetent lawyer who's insecure about his small hands. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then Michael Naughton, who played Seymour in this scene. Um, on It's Always Sunny, he has played an HR director one time, and then on three subsequent appearances, he was the waiter at the kind of fancy restaurant that the gang goes to. And they oh, yeah. they definitely have terrorized him yes. at the restaurant. I can't really remember the HR director plot, but I, I, I imagine it might be the same character who later lost his job, probably because of something that the, the gang did to him on, on Sunny. Right. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting thing. And I do think that the fact that those actors are, are comic actors Actors, it gave those characters, as you said, a sort of innocent naivete that was a nice thing for Bob Odenkirk to play against in that scene. And frankly, they were kind of relatable, normal people, so that by the time he turns on them, I was feeling myself like a sucker who bought his pitch. You right. know, it, it really was um, like Jimmy was saying to me, too, I can't believe you bought this bullshit. Yes. And it's a turning point, too. You, you'll always be able to look back at this moment in the show and say, oh, he could have got that job and been a copier salesman for a few months and then gone back to becoming a legit lawyer. Just a minute ago, you were talking about what's the significance of all this, and then you just said why we might look back at this as a pivotal moment. So I wonder if if it's more on the surface, like that this episode was about Jimmy making that kind of a move and about Kim doing the thing that she did. It's all about these characters who are kind of... Uh, uh, you, we can see both why they're doing what they're doing, but we can also kind of see how they're screwing up a little bit. Yeah. So now we reach what I would call, for our listeners' reference, the point of comparison. This would be the point in the episode where we will move on from Better Call Saul to the chosen spinoff of the week that we're going to put it up against. And uh, this is a great chance to, to jump off if all you want to hear is Better Call Saul talk or if you don't want to go to the internet and look up a pilot for an old show and watch it on YouTube so that you can enjoy fully what we're about to say. But I hope we make it entertaining enough, even if you didn't watch it, that we might might make you feel like I never need to watch that. I don't know. <laughs> or I definitely need to watch that. Right. Are you ready, Chris, to move on to a discussion of Barnaby Jones, the Buddy Ebsen show from the 70s, and how it compares to our beloved Better Call Saul? Yes, let's do it. This was conceived of and written and began production as an episode of the William Conrad series, Canon, right. uh, which was a detective show. Uh-huh. And it was meant to be sort of a, what they would call a backdoor pilot, where you make an episode of a show that is essentially a pilot for another show. Right. So it would have been a spinoff. But I think before they even put on that episode of Canon to be, they decided, no, this is its own show. Uh, let's go ahead and run it. And so they started right. that as a mid-season replacement or something. And so it ends up kind of being like a sister show in the same universe as Canon that didn't right. technically spin off, but is spun off. 
Well, I mean, it was on the list. Uh, if you listen to the last episode, you know that I found a list online of the most important spinoffs ever. And I uh, last time we talked about After Mash, the spinoff of Mash, and now we've moved on to another equally important sounding show. I, I enjoyed Barnaby Jones, and uh, uh, you know, and it was on for some years, so I can see that that you know that's kind of a thing. But I'm kind of wondering about the list because it does i just would not have thought i mean you know if they've got it on there they've got it on there i just would not have thought that barnaby jones was uh that well remembered to be thought of as one of the most important spinoffs but anyway it uh i I enjoyed it overall canon only had 122 episodes whereas barnaby jones went on to have 178 episodes yes it outlived its its predecessor whose show would you rather watch based on having seen a marvel team-up style episode where buddy epson and william conrad uh, stand around having really calm conversations about murder. <laughs> right. <laughs> are you team Cannon or are you team Barnaby Jones? I'm team Barnaby because I did come out of it saying, okay, I can see how Cannon had his thing and people could have enjoyed that. But I did uh, get something out of Barnaby Jones that made me say, I can see why he ran longer. Even though, you know, yeah, I, based on Beverly Hillbillies, I never thought a thing about Buddy Ebsen, never enjoyed him, never got <laughs> what the appeal was. I knew that he was like a dancer, and I thought, oh, that's mildly interesting. Uh, and on here, I wouldn't have thought that I would have uh, cared anything for him either, especially since it's kind of, it's kind of like his his main character trait is that he drinks milk. <laughs> like, they, like they love uh, <laughs> coming back to that uh, several times throughout, and apparently it's a thing on the show. He's a milk drinker, and that seems like an almost, you know, outside of, well, he's a detective, and he's a, he's a forensics expert. You know, uh, drinking milk seems like it would not be, uh, have any import or not be interesting at all. But in a way, it does do uh, a lot. Something as simple as that kind of gives you a picture of of somebody being a nice person, being mild and cool and easygoing and not caring what other people think and uh so i don't know maybe maybe all that uh and but just his uh easygoing nature and his and he's a little bit homespun or whatever but he's not overdoing it he's he's actually pretty darn bland yes and so you get but ba- you know the best actors are bland because you get to read in the emotions and uh and the thoughts and everything uh, it just makes them very subtle. So he's actually, I thought, I, I thought he he uh, worked really well in this. You know, I don't know. I felt like it, the underplaying was a little sedated, seeming to me. Like it felt a little, he's a little sleepy. Having seen a very homespun and folksy version of Buddy Epson, and that being the main one I picture, where he's like, "Well, hey, you guys, come on out." You know, that's a direct quote from Beverly Hillbilly Spot. Right. <laughs> Classic line. Classic Epson. I was a little surprised that he was so dry, and it felt to me as though he's doing the thing that I guess a, a studied actor can do, which is say, I'm going to remove all of the traces of um, of Jed Clampett, which means he's dropped all the affectations of homespun fun. There were a few moments where I felt something coming through that was kind of a character, but you're right. It wasn't like Matlock where they were overplaying the old guy thing. He's a little grandfatherly. Yeah just like the lead of our, our last spinoff, uh, uh, Colonel Potter. So there's, a, there's a little bit of a guy kind of outside his time who's marveling at you know how the world has become brutal. But also the way he becomes 
Barnaby Jones in in the sense of what the show's going to be is that he's drawn out of retirement when his son is murdered. His he was a private detective and his son was a private detective keeping the family business going. Barnaby Jones retired, went out to a ranch and then his son was murdered uh in what I would describe as a a very TV murder. Yes. You know, it's the scene where a person sees another person, it's on their face and then you see a shot of a gun going off and then you see a bloodless person go and you know fall down and, and it's the first scene just like any episode of of Columbo or so many things from that era the first scene is the murder and the rest of the show is uh, unraveling that I'm to understand that the show as it continued involved uh, Barnaby Jones and his daughter-in-law, the the slain man's wife, going into business together, that right. she joins him in the detective business. So I feel right. like we didn't really see the full concept pilot right. of this show because we didn't get to that arrangement. It didn't end with her saying, I guess we're a team. Right. That's true. But she was devastated in this episode. Um, uh, didn't have a whole lot to do. But what the murder of the son did for the pilot was it, it, it made it very personal for Barnaby Jones. It's almost a little absurd the way that he just kind of casually decides he's getting back into the business. It, you know, there's a scene where he takes out his gun and is checking it. And um, he's just making it clear to Cannon that essentially he's going out on a vigilante mission. And Cannon's like, well, all right, that's what you're going to do. I love that scene with both of them because it's so much like a Western because Cannon's like, I want to get on the case and hunt this guy down. And and Barnaby's like, no, nah, I got to do it. That's, that was my son. You know, they're both like chomping to go after this murderer just like in a, in a gritty Western or something. And then, you know, Cannon's like, okay, you do it. And then Barnaby's like, all right, but you help me. You know, so it's just... Uh, I love that. They're tough guys, and they're grizzled old detectives. Right. Yeah, neither one of them is a particularly likely hero, which I guess makes it a little iconoclastic. Any little detail like that that sets someone apart helps add a little charm uh, with a show like this. Like you were mentioning the milk thing earlier. I, I guess it exists to sort of turn on its head the idea of the the detective who's always slugging back whiskey. Right. But it is a really weird peg to hang a character on, to say, well... He drinks milk. There's one scene where Barnaby Jones is sitting in the car talking to Cannon, and he's eating ribs <laughs> and drinking milk. Uh -huh. I just couldn't stop thinking about how bad Buddy Epson's breath must have been <laughs> in that scene. <laughs> if he's if he's been eating ribs and drinking milk, even if he's just taking a bite, you know, and he's sitting there doing yeah. probably take after take. And William Conrad gets out of the car as Cannon. He's disgusted by <laughs> the the diet. Of, yeah. uh, of Barnaby Jones, which made me think, are we to believe that Cannon's something of a foodie? Yes. Because he was making a spinach souffle. I never watched uh, Cannon as a kid, but yeah, my research showed that uh, I think his way of, of bucking the typical P.I. was to, stay, was to say, like, you know, in, instead of being poor and managing to grab half a hot dog on the street... He is uh, pretty well-to-do and has a really nice car and is always cooking and enjoying the finest restaurants and so on. So, yeah, he's a foodie. A thing I wanted to uh, say that I enjoyed most, and I think is the reason that I was plugged in for the show, is just that it had great music. Uh, at least it struck me as great. They would, you know, it's very uh, 70s, uh, uh, soundtracky, but it's, uh, it, you know, it's a real soundtrack. It's not just that, you know, you're taking some... Uh, uh, music and laying it in, you, it sounds like somebody composed all this to fit with the show and that made some great decisions about, okay, this, this, is gonna, this scene is going to be bass guitar and flute, and the next scene is going to be flute and uh, uh, electric guitar and a piano. And then the scene after that, we're going to come in with the horn and the bass guitar again, you know, uh, and also they would Mickey Mouse it. You know, somebody would say their line, and as they lean back, the music would have an extra few notes, and then they'd say their other line. You know, it would all be fit together perfectly like like a Carl Stalling type of a, 
arrangement. And uh, it reminded me of that, uh, I think there's a supercut somebody did online of uh, uh, instrumental music scenes from Rockford Files, was it? You remember that? Uh, you're just seeing all the lines without, all the scenes without dialogue from Rockford Files. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, and you're just hearing the music. And, uh, and it's fantastic music, of course. The music is so dynamic and exciting. Like the opening theme got me in such a great mood. The um, the show itself turned out to be so much more laid back and familiar to that era of just a certain kind of woozy pace. Yeah. And I try not to blame, you know, items from the past for having a different rhythm than things of today. Right. But it reminded me of when I was a kid watching things like this and how I would kind of drift in and out of them. And I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, the music was more exciting than the show. Right. I wanted it to be a soundtrack for my life. Like, I wanted to just be able to play the music while I'm brushing my teeth and combing my hair. You know, it would make you feel like I'm alive and everything's going great and it's really cool and awesome. I'm a spy. Sometimes it can almost seem comical when you have this bombastic music and then you've got William Conrad and and Buddy Epson, like, under-talking <laughs> for 10 minutes. But I, I do think you're right. It it just gave the whole thing this kind of lushness that... Yeah. Uh, that that swept me away a bit. Right. Um, and I forgive uh, uh, pretty easily a, a different pace from a different time. And I forgive um, simpler storytelling, I think, because it's just a different thing. Like uh, Better Call Saul is uh, an artistic uh, exercise, and you really are getting a workout for your brain. You can wonder what's his motivation, what's she going to do, uh, where is this going and really mull it over and over and over obviously since we were able to do this show Barnaby Jones something as simple as that is just a different thing so it's like the difference between having a uh, uh, you know a four course French Japanese fusion meal that really makes you think about what what food is you know uh, versus a cheeseburger you know and, and a lot of times you only want a cheeseburger. And so I can sit down with a show like this, or I was able to on, on this uh, uh, experience, and say, wow, I'm just really enjoying the simplicity of this. I would argue that Better Call Saul is a little bit more meat and potatoes than you're making it sound. I think that it, it does exist as a counterpoint in some ways, but in other ways, it, you know, the pacing is not that different. It's the it's the it's where the thrills and chills come in. And I think in a show like Barnaby Jones, there's a comfort food aspect to the way the storyline progresses along a certain track and right. you sort of see it coming and you yes. want it to happen that way. Yes. Whereas with um, Better Call Saul, you're watching such a small sliver of the story in a given episode that the shape of the story can be really unusual in that you do have a scene like that great scene with Jimmy at the copier place and that's your thrill of the week. That's the equivalent of the scene where Barney B. Jones gets the drop on the guy um, where, uh, you know, Epson yeah. out of the shadows, boom, knocks the guy down. Wow. Pulls out a gun. Choo -choo. <laughs> uh, very exciting scene, sort of. You know, th that milk probably makes his bones really strong. So I think that probably helps <laughs> in these situations. It's charming to me to watch a show like this. So when I say I was put off by the pace, I, I'm, I'm really saying that it was the same for me back in the 70s and the 80s when I was a kid and the stuff was just on. I had a, a sort of drifting in and out quality. Right. Another reason this show seems to me like such a relic of its time is there is a character actor in it, Robert Hogan who plays Reed Carpenter, the actor. And he's like a television actor. Uh -huh. He's been in every show. Right. If you look at the list of shows he's been in, he's he was on Mork and Mindy. Um, he did this. He did six episodes of Barnaby Jones yeah. as six different characters. Yeah. 
they used to do that kind of thing. They would yeah. have like a group of actors they would keep reusing. And I would almost, I, I didn't have time to do this, obviously, but I would have liked to have seen how different he looked, if at all, from season to season. <laughs> right. If you were an astute watcher of Barnaby Jones, would you just go, oh, that's the same guy? Right. Back then, if you were a television actor, you were not a movie actor. Right. Or at least being known as a television actor was seen as hurting your chances at being a movie actor. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I think it's the wall between the two is so... Uh, permeable that that uh, you know big actors want a show mm -hmm. so yeah i thought that was kind of interesting and one other thing about that guy his name robert hogan is the name of the character on hogan's heroes and that's not just a coincidence because robert hogan was friends with the creator of hogan's heroes uh, bernard fine and bernard named the lead character on the show after his friend the journeyman actor Oh, how peculiar. It seems like almost an inconvenient thing to do to your friend, you know, who's an actor. Yeah, because your name is more famous than you are. <laughs> and now it's like I've saddled my friend with this thing where now er everywhere he goes, people are like, your name is the same as the name of that character. You don't think maybe it helped him in an audition situation? Uh, I like Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. Let's hire this guy. He seems like a fun sort of miscreant. Right. <laughs> Rascal. Let's come to the final question, unless you have any other things to say about Barnaby Jones, Buddy Epson, etc. Well, one other note I thought we would make is that it, uh, a connection with uh, Better Call Saul that you could make is that um, uh, Barnaby Jones follows uh, a man uh, who's lost his son and uh, the widow of that son, uh, just like uh, we follow Mike, uh, who has lost his son in Better Call Saul and, and the son's widow. Uh, so if she teams up with Mike to solve mysteries, that'll be the same arrangement. But it's almost there now because we see them together all the time. You know, they always said on Breaking Bad that their plan was to show the depiction of uh, Mr. Chips turning into Scarface. Uh, it would be interesting if Better Call Saul got usurped by the plot line of um, Mike Ehrmantraut turning into Barnaby Jones. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's old. He's a little bit crusty. Uh, they're both very clever and they both lost a son and, and hang around with their uh, daughter-in-law from the lost son. Yeah, but whereas Mike has a lot of remorse around his son's death and it kind of hangs over him like a cloud, yeah. I feel like Barnaby Jones kind of puts the bright side on it. <laughs> Barnaby! <laughs> Glad you could make it. Thank you. How does it feel to be back in harness, an old war horse like you? Well, it's a funny thing. Life was so good. Retirement. Perfect health, nice ranch. Yeah? There was something missing. And now you know, huh? My work. And God help me that this is the way I must rediscover it. Through the death of my son. Come on. I used to be pretty good, you know. Pretty good. The best in the business. <laughs> he sets up the show for you. The end result of my son's death is, I'm back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you shut the door and you see Barnaby Jones Detective Agency. My final note before we move on to the ultimate question of which spinoff is best of all of the ones we've looked at thus far uh, is that the writer of this, Edward Hume, he wrote the pilot to this or the episode of Canon that would have been the pilot to this or became the pilot to this. He also wrote the pilot to Canon and he wrote the very upsetting 1981 film The Day After. Oh, that was about nuclear fallout. Yes. I remember watching it at school. Yes. Remember when they would sometimes wheel in a cart with a television and a VCR on it, and they would just show a movie in class? It always seemed a little bit like the teacher was, was kind of trying not to teach that day, but it was tenuously connected to something you were studying, like Romeo and Juliet or something of that nature. But when they made us watch the day after, I really felt like it was, come in here, kids, and watch this horrifying film. <laughs> right. We used to be really afraid of that, and we may be back in that 
shadow of being really afraid of, of nuclear war. Could happen, but yeah, it doesn't hang over you all the time like it did for me when I was a kid. If I recall correctly, we even had drills where we would get under our desks and, and put our heads between our knees. <laughs> and even at the age of 10, we, we would look at each other like, yeah, this is going to work. Yeah, it's definitely survive a nuclear bomb based on getting in that position with your hands behind your head. So take a position on uh, on the spinoff debate. Did uh, did Barnaby Jones turn your turn your head away from Better Call Saul? Which which spinoff is best? If we're going to call Barnaby Jones a spinoff, uh, is, is it better than Better Call Saul? Or is Better Call Saul still the champ? I'm going to say it could be close, but based on the information that I have, having watched all of Better Call Saul so far, and only the pilot of Barnaby Jones, I do think Better Call Saul is a much better show. But... I feel like if I watched all of both shows, there's some possibility just because I enjoyed the experience of the of the music and the uh, uh, cheeseburger-like uh, uh, feeling of it that I explained that I might uh, you know that I might rather take Barnaby Jones to a uh, desert island than uh, than Better Call Saul. Well, I'm in agreement with you about Better Call Saul once again coming out on top in the ongoing spinoff derby. But as far as which one I would rather take to a desert island, I think I would still prefer Saul in the sense that it's, it is, as I've said before, sort of like a big book. Right. If I had the complete Better Call Saul, I think I would enjoy going through it again and again. Yes. However, I hope you're on the same desert island as me because when I'm bored with Saul, I would like to maybe swap it out for the complete Barnaby Jones DVD set that it sounds like you have. <laughs> right. Because I do think it would be fun. It was enjoyable in a way that made this face-off uh, close... Closer than you would have expected. Yeah. Closer than I thought. Because this is a genre. This is the detective show genre. You know if you like it, you can kind of watch endless variations on it and and not to say that buddy Epson isn't somewhat distinctive as barnaby jones you could just about trade out barnaby jones for columbo or for canon or for any kind of uh not conventionally attractive leading man who's going to solve crime yeah here's a rumpled guy who's going to come in and no one's really that impressed with him and he's going to uh you know flip the table on everybody so right it's a, it's a reliable formula. Yes. And I would love to have a spinach souffle and a glass of milk and then awkwardly wave a gun around. You know, that <laughs> sounds like a good time to me. Yes. I think that wraps it up for this week, Chris. Okay. We'll come back next time with another item on the list, another important spinoff. Okay. We'll see how it fares against Better Call Saul and hopefully, maybe, find out where Jimmy and Kim's heads are at. Yeah. Hot talk. Hot talk. Barnaby Jones.